Linda, everything went black, Mateo. I'm excited that you agreed to uh, come on the show. And uh, this is, uh, you know, the beginning of a new phase of uh, the story of everything went black. And uh, welcome. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're all excited. We appreciate you uh, calling us. And uh, for those of you out there who um, have listened to the Metal Matters podcast that I formerly hosted along with Randy Larson and other people uh, for, for Gimme Metal, uh, Mateo is the drummer in Cavera, a band that made both of my, our lists of uh, top five records in 2020. And uh, aside from Cavera being a great band, uh, Mateo and I have been friends for several years, having met on the 16 Tombs tour from like, I don't know, that was like a long time ago at this point, wasn't it? 2012. Damn. Yeah, the 16 Tombs grinder. Holy shit, it's that long ago? 2012, 2013, yeah. Oh my That's God. when it was, yeah, I think 12. Damn, it seems like yesterday. There you go. Fuck, man. I guess that, I guess, I guess that's right, man. Damn, okay. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's when you and I met. That tour was pretty fun. It was a couple weeks long. And, uh, you know, we, uh, you, came, you came over. I picked, I, did I pick you up at the airport or did you just, like, show up at my house one, one day? No, man, I car service. Ah, I showed up at your place in, uh, what was it, Greenpoint? Is that where you were at? Yeah, that's there? where I was living. Yep. And then we, um, yeah, the next day, this I can't remember if they met us in uh, New York and we all went or if they met us in Pittsburgh because I think the first show was in Pittsburgh, right? Or the first show was elsewhere. And we, uh, yeah, I think your dudes came over and we all rolled out and met them in another city. Yeah, that's basically what happened. We had, um, we had a, Eric Larson was the van driver. And uh, so you and me and Eric stayed at my place that night. And um, he had the van and the trailer. And uh, having two bands traveling um, in a passenger van, sharing gear, uh, it was almost like one of those European tours where you kind of put everyone in one vehicle and roll. And Larson was, uh, you know, uh, a renowned uh, road guy, uh, you know, uh, driver, drummer, guitar player, uh, tech, you know, all-around guy. And uh, we retained his services for this thing. So, uh, so yeah, it was kind of interesting because um, that night I had just met you. I didn't, I don't really, didn't really know Larson that well. So it was like the three of us kind of, you know, posted up my apartment. None of us really knew each other that well, and uh, you know, it was the beginning of this uh, little journey we had. You know. Yeah, I I definitely remember that part. Yeah, uh, meeting Larson, who's yeah, he's from Avail and. Alabama Thunder Pussy and different stuff like that. Yeah, uh, nice guy. And I do remember, <laughs> I do remember the moments kind of, kind of starting to get to know one another uh, there that night. But it came on pretty quick. Yeah, totally. It came on pretty quick. Yeah. yeah, everybody was laid back. And then the next morning, we drove out to Pittsburgh to meet the rest of your band, the rest of the guys in sixteen. And uh, and then it was off, off to the races, as they say. That, yeah, that was it. Off to the races, just like you know. I think it was like a, a few hours standing outside of a Pittsburgh bar, <laughs> you know, it was an interesting, it, I mean, yeah, that was a cool tour. I, that, that was a particularly interesting 
show in it in itself. There's some interesting characters that showed up to that one. You know. Oh yes, uh, I remember that. There yeah. Was this, uh, yeah. Contingency of uh, let's say uh, white supremacists. I think that um, more or less kept to themselves, but definitely had a presence at that show. And um, I found yeah. that to be a very a very Pennsylvania thing to happen at a at a, a heavy metal show. Yeah, was it? Yeah, see, I don't. I've played Pennsylvania a few times, mostly Philly, but uh, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of that. And yeah, I mean, you know, down here in Southern California, I think we refer to those cats as big ass woods. <laughs> there, nice man. You know, Pecker Woods, man. They were yeah. they were huge, dude. Those guys, some yeah. of those guys were, man. Yeah, big dudes. But yeah. anyway, yeah, that it, yeah, it went off it went off cool and. Uh, yeah, I mean the whole thing was a, a generally a good time. I, I do have some fond memories of that of that tour. I mean, one of the memories I think I have is because I took pictures one night uh, that came out pretty cool, and uh, I remember being in Indianapolis, and there was a band that played before us that was super badass, like grind band. You remember those dudes? It could have been played before us. They, it could have been one of a few bands, because uh, Indianapolis is, uh, in my in my estimation, is pretty, for me at least. I think of Indianapolis as being a city filled with like really good bands, because uh, that's like where Gates of Slumber was from, and uh, the Dream is Dead, and uh, Ice Nine was from that that city, and there I think it was um, Black Arrows of. Man, I can't. I, I like this band quite a bit, actually. But yeah, they're like a grind, uh, like with doom parts, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it was either yeah, Grim I remember, or maybe Coffin Worm. It was one of those two bands that played. I don't remember who it was, but I remember they just totally shredded it. And I started talking to the drummer, dude. I was like, dude, that was sick, because <laughs> this dude just totally was hammering away on this little kit, grinding his fucking balls off, dude. And after that, like, I started talking to him. He was like, yeah, man, I, I usually play country western music. And I, I just figured I'd try my hand at it, man. <laughs> I was like, God damn, dude, mission accomplished, man. And then um, I remember later on talking to you and you said you had walked over to the singer. And you were like, dude, that was sick. And the guy just with a kind of a flat affect goes, always. And that <laughs> yeah, was like the right. end of yeah. the conversation. <laughs> Remember that? I was laughing about that the other day. Yeah, he was like, always. And just like that was it. You know? Hey, right on, dude. Yeah, Indy, you know? Indy is like a, a weird place, man. Like I, um, it, in the late 90s, it seems like there was like a lot of stuff going on there, like just in general around the Midwest. And uh, a lot of, I met a lot of really great people. And um, it became like a spot, even if we weren't playing shows, we would go and hang out there just to, you know, drive and stay with, stay with friends or whatever. But over the last, uh, I would say, 10 years, it's like this, uh, this dark cloud seems to have uh, settled over Indianapolis. And um, a lot of people have, uh, you know, died and committed suicide and all this other stuff. And it's um, kind of dark over there, you know, and... and uh, yeah, I stay in touch with everyone still, but 
Uh, I've lost several really, really good friends from that city. And uh, we haven't, probably the last time we played there might have been on that tour that we did with you guys. Yeah, interesting. You know, I don't know much about Indianapolis or Indiana. Um, it's usually like a sort of a, when I'm on tour, it, like we kind of just pass through there. Yeah. Uh, just except for it's flat and it takes a little time, you know, <laughs> kind of like where I grew up in Texas, you know, drive halfway from Houston to Los Angeles and you're still in Texas. I know? remember the first time I drove across Texas and that's when I truly understood the scope of the United States, man. Like back, like on one of the first tours I did, we drove, you know, we played shows in like Austin and whatnot, but then we had to like kind of hightail it across the state to get into like New Mexico. And you had uh, to hightail it across Texas. Yeah, man. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was like, I don't, 11 hours and you're still not near the Western border. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're fucking in, in the West, you know, it's like a Sam Peckinpah yeah. film or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's gnarly, bro. What yeah. part of, uh, what part of Texas I, did you grow up in? I grew up in Houston, in Houston, Texas. Um, and, uh, yeah, Houston, Texas, which is like, you know, it's like the fourth, I guess it's battles, maybe another city for the fourth largest city in, in the United States. But that's only because it, um, you know, it's it, like some other places, like it's annexed in the city's annexed in a bunch of like the outer sort of portions and it's just kind of made it bigger. So you, it's, so it's a pretty interesting place in that like, it's got a little small uh, downtown area and then, you know, you can go out and be like, you know, standing next to somebody's electric fence on horse property and you're still in Houston. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, but, uh, I lived there for, you know, off and on for like 27 years. I did bounce around the United States a bit, you know, I quit high school pretty young and, you know, lived in, uh, the tri-state like Ohio, West Virginia, area for a while right on the edge of like chesapeake and huntington you know speaking of uh dark clouds um but uh you know yeah huntington man it's just it's weird what's happened to that place you know with all the like like fentanyl and all that shit you know the oh, pharmacy yeah. pharmaceutical drugs and stuff but um so yeah i i lived around there and then i lived in portland oregon for a while when I was like right 18, 19, hung out there and just sort of kind of went back to Texas as a home base, uh, usually, but, um, finally bolted out of there, you know, probably when I was like, you know, 27 or so moved to LA. I've been here ever since about 20 years. You used you, you played in buzz oven for a while too, right? I did. I played in buzz oven when I was 21 years old. I got into the band. I played in it. More than six months, less than a year. I did a tour with them, played about pushing like 30 shows with them, you know? Was that yeah. the, the tour that they did with Season to Risk or? Uh... It, it wasn't. That okay. was a tour. Um, that tour was with um, Sour Vein. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah like the first incarnation i think of the band sour vein yeah we toured i guess it was called like 30 days of roadkill was the name of that tour and it was uh it was just that 30 days of fucking roadkill um sorry man i'm i'm, I'm dropping a bunch of f-bombs in this dude i don't I'm, care no, that's fine man there's no uh, uh okay yeah no uh yeah i'll try censorship we're free here this is like a free right. form uh expression that we're doing here yeah, I'll try and keep it to a minimum so people can play it in like the uh, daycare centers and stuff. I don't, I don't think work, we have uh, much of an audience there, the daycare centers. But you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, you never so, know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so um, yeah, when I was like twenty-one, I mean, Buzz Evan had come into Houston. And were sort of posted up there. I think they had, by that time, they were looking around for a bass player. But the remaining guys were there. And um, the reason, I guess, they were there in the first place is because their roadie sample guy, a dude named Mike Davidson, his older cousin is Nikki, the singer for Verbal Abuse. Oh, wow. Okay. And Verbal Abuse, Nikki... Uh, and a guy named Joe Dead, the guitarist for maybe Verbal Abuse, but for for hu- another band, Humongous at the time, for sure that they were doing. They lived in Houston. And so they would kind of stop through there from time to time. And shit was kind of blown apart. I met Kirk at originally Emos in Houston. There was an Emos there, too. The first Emos was in Houston. I met him there. And we got to talking a little bit just about common music. I knew who he was already, and I had a band, and I was like, I was like, yeah, we should, you know, play some shows together or something. And he was open to it, but then I saw him later on at a Neurosis show. This is the tour, probably right before uh, Through Silver and Blood came out. Yeah, and so I saw him there. We got to talking some more. Not long after that, it was a very interesting day for me when Kirk called me at first because I was working at a couple of different bars, one of them being Emo's where I met him. But there was a bar next door that was like this like after hours bar, sort of nightclub. And, um, you know, I had gotten a call this one day, like on a Monday, which was weird. My boss was like, hey, can you come up and talk to me? It was just like a ominous sort of phone call you know you know in in a word like i knew i was gonna get fired yeah yeah and so this dude yeah yeah yeah. it's like you're fired but you can come and i can do it face to face with you so i went up there um but before i left the phone rang again i almost didn't answer it dude i remember the image of me reaching for the doorknob on my apartment is burned into my mind and I was like, ah, whatever. So I put my bike down, I turned around and I went and answered the phone and it was Kirk. And he was like, yo, uh, we lost our drummer. Do you want to jam? Nice. Which was, you know, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, just kind of got slammed upside the head with that. Cause that's not what I had intended, you know? Um, so, you know, of course I did. And so I split and I remember my boss was firing me and I was just on cloud nine, dude. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, right on, bro. <laughs> you know, it's like, I gotta, you know, I gotta let you go. 
I'm really sorry, you know. And I remember looking at this dude, and I shit you not, I go, it's probably, I, I go, man, you never know. It might be the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> I, I told that to the dude, and I just remember the dude's jaw basically figuratively hitting the floor. You know, he just couldn't believe it. I don't think his intent came across like he wanted it to. You know, so, I mean, too, you know, long story short, too late, like two months later, we were on the road. You know, it's it, what's really cool is back then it was like phones were, were these like, you know, wired landline devices that you didn't carry around with you all the time. So it's like these days you would have got a text message or something from somebody and that you would have definitely gotten that message. But back then you had to like coincide your location to, next to the phone with actually getting a phone call back then, you know? Yeah. 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 You could actually get away from those things yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. past. No, totally, man. And I, a lot of times these days I think about that, like back when, um, you know, probably like around that time, you know, in the nineties, it's like you can take a walk and no one would be able to find you. You know what I mean? And, and there's, yeah. there's a certain peace associated with that, you know, in some ways. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's one way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I had a friend, a tattooer friend back in the day, and it was right when cell phones were really no longer those, like, huge, like, uh, Clash. Remember that band or the that video by the Clash, Rock the Casbah? Oh, yeah. I think there was one of those old-school cell phones in that, you know? Yeah. But uh, a mobile phone is what I think they would call it, you know? But, um. Yeah, I heard people t say that, like, when you talked on those things, they, like, got really hot. <laughs> You'd start to bum out and get off the phone, you know. But um, but my buddy, back when cell phones, you know, first came out or were, were getting kind of big, he, it rang one day when we were in his car. And, he, and I was like, oh, your phone's ringing. He goes, yeah, I don't answer my leash. Nice. You that, know, and I think about it. that sometimes. Yeah, and I, I think about that sometimes, yeah, because, like, yeah, it, it, it's funny. We thought we were the shit when we had Star 69 back in the day or we figured those services out, you know, and now you're just like being tracked everywhere you go, you know. The other thing I find yeah. interesting about that whole idea is like back in the 90s, everyone was paranoid about the government, you know, spying on you and all this stuff and like, oh, you know, I don't want them to know my information. And now people gladly give up all of their details, their banking info, like their their date of birth, their social security numbers willingly to these like uh, Cyberdyne systems style platforms that everyone is so eager to be part of. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the, the arguments that had made it into the public arena recently that was just sort of making a farce out of the idea um, that people were propagating this, uh, this conspiracy of Bill Gates putting a tracker in everyone with the like coronavirus. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, the vaccine or whatever, you know, and people were like, dude, you get tracked every, do you have a cell phone? Why would they need to put a tracker in you? Anyway, we won't get too far into that nonsense, but yeah, I, I think that's a good example of the kind of thing you're talking about as well. Yeah. Uh, Buzz Oven 
as you know, because I mean, we actually discussed this, Randy and I uh, often celebrate Buzz Oven as being a really important band. And, uh, and that, just that era of bands, it's um, that crossover of, you know, like metal and punk and hardcore and, you know, just like this other thing that found its way into music that evolved heavy music into what we have now. You know, I think that that period of time was like, like a very important part of uh, of the kind of music that everyone that mostly mostly listens to this podcast probably enjoys. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was cool. Like I, you know, when I when I found out you were in Buzz Oven on that tour, I was like, wow, that's I'd like to you know talk to you about that someday. But that that's that's, that's yeah, really cool. yeah, yeah. I you know what, <clears throat> I I um, share your sentiments. I. I am still to this day a very big Buzz Oven fan. Um, I even just recently have been communicating with Kirk Fisher. Um, all of those guys have a huge place in my heart. Um, that tour and doing that was very important. It's, you know, sometimes when I look back at that part of my life personally, just with the tour, um, it's, it's hard to overestimate um, the benefits that that, that that had for me and just the learning process that that had. And, and I know um, there are many things that have been said about Buzz Oven, but I want to I wanna also throw into that conversation that, um, you know, Kirk Fisher is a person who, you know, on one of his worst days was a person who had motivation that would just run circles around your average person. I mean, you have to, you know, if you look at the band's accomplishments and their songwriting and how much they had actually gotten done and, and when the era was, this is not some internet stuff back before I got in that band and they had toured the United States eight times by the time I got into that band, you know, that's what, and that's with like, you know, your corded dinosaur telephones, you know, and he set the tour up that we did on a telephone, you know, but, um, but that era of music um, is especially um, important to, to me as well. And I know that uh, as far as the Kavera guys, um, Kirk and Scott, those dudes share in that as well. I mean, those were really, there was a bunch of cool shit going on back then. Some of that stuff that hasn't even really made the transfer into the, the sort of cyber world. You know, I think we talked about one record recently. It was a lung cast records um, LP. And I was like, God, oh, have you heard this? And I was looking for it cause I was going to send the link and you had heard it, but it, I couldn't, find any kind of like links on these like sort of streaming services that, or even, you know, um, I don't even think YouTube at all had it, you know, but, um, yeah, all of those times were very informative for, for me. And I know, um, the other, uh, Kavera guys as well. I mean, Scott, the bass player for Kavera actually was in many, he plays in a couple of bands. Now he plays in goat snake and he also plays in, another band called Sonic Medusa. It's a, it's a trio. It's him and the drummer from Goat Snake, uh, Greg from the obsessed. 
and uh, another dude. Um, but uh, he played in an old uh, touch and go band back in the day. Um, he was on a um, in a band called Brickbat that oh, was yeah. on Touch yeah. and Go Records. Yeah, that. he was a Brickbat bass player from back in the day. Yeah, and he's from he's from Wilmington originally, which is you know the same town that um, Dave Collins, who they call you know Dixie from Weed Eater. So he he's a little older than Dave, but he he grew up with all those dudes, so he knows all those cats. But um, yeah, um, I digress a bit, but uh, I too, you know, I, those, those times and those labels, you know, are, are very, were very informative to me. Pessimizer and Theologian and Bovine and Longcast and Vermiform, uh, Amphetamine Reptile, especially. Yeah. 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 Amrep's always been a huge influence on, on all those bands like the Cows and, you know. Cows particularly were a band that I really gravitated towards because their live shows were so fucking insane, man. You know? Yes. Yes. Um, and we'll definitely have to digress into some cow shows moments here for a second. <laughs> sure, like, man. I've seen them many, many times. And the other dudes, it's funny. Actually, one day I heard you guys, you and Randy talking on one of your podcasts, and you were saying that, like, somebody in Kuvera seems like they like the cows. And I just laughed because I would have never thought someone would have guessed that, but we're all huge Cows fans, you know, and especially I'm going to leave. Scott has a really funny story about the Cows, you know, but um, and I'll leave that for him to tell you because it, it's a special thing for Scott to tell you a story. But um, I've seen the Cows several times. Like I said, I used to work at Emo's in Houston and I lived in Portland and I saw him at Satyricon up there and stuff. And, I've seen that dude Shannon Selberg in some pretty incredible moments. And I remember being at Emo's one day in Houston and people were kind of tripping. There was a weird vibe when I walked in and what it was, was Shannon was sitting at the bar drinking in the middle of the day and he had a Bic lighter and you know how people put the fucking gas up all the way. So it's just like a torch. Yeah. He, he was, he, he kept lighting his cigarette with that, with it set on torch, but he had black cat firecrackers woven all into his beard. So he was sitting there with all these like live firecrackers (laughs) woven into the hair of his beard. He kept lighting a cigarette with this big flame. And so people were just kind of bumming out and like backing away from him, you know? Yeah. But uh, I don't I don't know what kind of mind comes up with that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that was pretty ingenious. That that was my whole attraction to the band. Is like his lyrics have like such like the irony and and the kind of wit of his lyrics, and the the music itself is um you know pretty pretty awesome like you know punk rock style you know like with like a you know a bit of a Stooges kind of thing going on and um. The live show was probably, um, I would say, like right up there with like, well, not not as trippy as seeing the butthole surfers, but like Shannon himself would take on the persona of just like this completely primal, uh, far out, psychedelic sort of character. You know what I mean? And um, every time I knew they were playing, I was like, man, I got to go because like 
it's it, every single time I saw them play it was different. Like there was like a different energy, a different atmosphere, and like uh, there were points where you're like, you kind of felt like anything could happen at at one of their shows. You know, something could blow up. Like there could be like a fight, or you know, you get you could get injured, or something like that would happen at a cow's show. You know. Yes, I I agree, and and uh, yeah, I did. I do actually recall seeing you know a pretty interesting fight at a cow show yeah um and um yeah you know i mean i think he was a kind of person who just them as a band they just kind of threw you off and it, the butthole surface are a good a good comparison because you know you look at like what's the guy's name paul leary like the guitarist yeah you ever watch that dude's face when the butthole surfers play? No, I haven't. You know, it's no. like, it, it's the weirdest thing, man. Like the contortions that dude's face does. It, it's a little bit like, um, like an LSD version of, I guess, like, you know, David from, from neurosis, you okay. know, he really goes, it gets into it, you know, psychically, you can tell by the look on his face, you know, but, uh, Paul Leary's like kind of like that on at LSD fast forward or something, you know, like, <laughs> but, uh, but um yeah they they did have some pretty interesting different stuff going on i mean shannon silberg i think summarized it really good in an interview i saw one time and, and he said um you know doing this kind of music there's i think two different categories he said there's the rebels and there's the aliens and the rebels are always going to let you down go with the aliens you know and i i think that's kind of a good a good summary of, of, of the sort of thing that the cows did you know they really kind of knocked you off your footing a bit especially shannon you know yeah i could agree with um that. definitely yeah i mean you know other bands um from that era like um hammerhead oh, was yeah. one yeah that i really liked and i mean of course you know i mean the unsane i mean you can't i mean just an incredible band. Um, uh, the Unsane, the Cows. I, and I really, I think I got turned on to that stuff because I was a big Mud Honey fan, and they did those dope guns, yep. comps, and that's how I discovered like, uh, you know, Helmet. I didn't know who they were, and then I was like, oh, I, I like this band, and then I, I got um, Strap It On, you know, which is like getting one toot in your face. You know, to this day, I put that record on. I'm just like, this is badass. Yeah, that's my favorite Helmet record, just because it sounds so raw and noisy. And it's got that, like, you know, like just like this, like it, it, it's this intensity that I think, even though the records later on, like production-wise, got better, there wasn't that intensity wasn't there that there was on Strap It On, you know. <sighs> Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, even though like, um, you know, always hats off to those who's just because they're just incredible players. Um, I saw those, I mean, I saw them way back in the day, like right when Meantime came out and they played, I think they toured around with like L7 or something, you know. I remember that too. But um, yeah, yeah, like Smell the Magic and, you know, Meantime, I guess, you know. And I, I always recognized they were, you know, amazing, but... You know, some years back on a on a at a Halloween show here in LA, like I don't really go to the West Side too much, you know. Um, but um, I ventured over there to see Helmet on Halloween. I, I actually think somebody let me in the show for free, so I, I dragged myself over there. But um, they played at the Viper Room, and 
you know, when they went on stage, Paige Hamilton was like, he's like, I wanted to play this. He, they play, I think he played a couple songs and then he goes, you know, I wanted to play um, this next song, but I want to tell you, like it was written. He says, you know, when I, that the story that, that inspired the song was, he says, you know, it was written because when I was living in New York, um, I was living in this building and, and all of a sudden there was this like bad smell. And uh, it was, a, he's like, it was like a notably hot summer. And um, we started smelling something really foul. And it turned out that like a dude in our building had been murdered and somebody wrapped him up in carpet oh, man. and left him in there in the heat. And he's like, so I, I wrote the song murder, which is, you know, an insane song off of, uh, off of uh, strap it on. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, cool. They're going to play something off strap it on. And he goes, so yeah, I wanted to play Murder, but instead, you know, I figured we're just gonna play the whole Strap It On record. Oh man! In in the order in the order of the album, and I was like, "What, dude?" And they proceeded to boil the paint off the walls of that joint. Yeah, they they've always been a great band. I mean, such you know incredible musicians, and you know, I, I've always had a lot of respect for Helmet, and I uh, I think they actually were the first Amrep band I heard that drew me into the fold of the rest of the label because they were, there was that one year where all you heard about was helmet, you know, they were everywhere. And that's what pulled me into that. Like I, I'd gotten into uh, the sub pop, you know, stuff like mud honey and um, screaming trees. And, you know, even the, I mean, screaming trees, mm -hmm. mostly most of their stuff was on SST, but they had a seven inch, I think on sub pop. And, um, you know, I was like in that world and then the AMREP stuff, came after that and then i just dove like deep into it through you know the conduit being helmet and their popularity and then i discovered you know lubricated goat and the cows and you know so many great bands the crows you know just very uh just a a, a, a sort of sub genre of like ex-punks that had stumbled into adulthood that was like the vibe that i got from from amphetamine reptile yeah yeah you know i mean it's funny you said lubricated code not the thought of this like houston's a fucking weird place dude but um uh, especially hanging out with drunk people outside of emos but um uh yes i mean you know i was thinking recently like um you know there's all these like categories you know i mean love them or hate them there's all these just sort of categories of, of music or whatever that are you know oftentimes annoying but i i noticed that that I remember back in the day, like that amphetamine reptile logo, amphetamine reptile was like on top of noise. It said noise yeah. in there. And I just, I even thought that was weird for them at the time because I always associated noise with like, you know, throbbing gristle or like some other, some other like noise, like, you know, Masada or black leather Jesus or something like yeah. that, you know, yeah, noise right. experimental. But I think the thing that even all of that stuff has in common that like, I don't really see a lot of the bands that are associated with noise nowadays. And I think this just kind of harkens to what you're talking about, about like graduating into adulthood, you know, it's like, is um, those bands were kind of dangerous, dude. Yeah. Totally. Like that was like the kind of feeling that there was a sort of a danger attention to that stuff and i and I, I i listen to some of the stuff that's called noise now and i'm just like no nah, I, I i i guess i'm coming from a different angle with this you know like um 
or I have a different idea of it or whatever, you know, you know, I'm not a, you know, not a music Nazi or anything like that. It's just an observation. Uh, but coming back really fast, something funny like that, you know, for, there's a bunch of badass bands that are from Houston, you know, um, but, um, there's typically been a lot of great shows there, but one night, one of the dudes from lubricated goat passed through there at one point, And at one night I was working and that dude was like three sheets to the wind and he was sitting on the, on the patio smoking a cigarette. He just fixed on me, his eyes. Like, and he just kept staring at me, just kind of drooling on himself. And I just kept doing my job and stuff, you know, checking IDs, whatever the hell, you know, and I'm sitting there and he's staring at me. And finally I was like, dude, what the, I was like, what? (laughs) And he just sort of took a cigarette from his mouth and he like blew the smoke out and he goes, you fucking farmer, oh you know, God. and that's all he said, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, so why I started laughing when you said lubricated goat, you know, was Scott it, was a bass player for Kavira. Go ahead. Was it that guy, Stu Spasm, like the lead dude, like the main guy, like the singer guy? I don't think so. I, I think it might've been the bass player or guitarist for, for lubricated goat, but don't, but don't quote me on that. But, but he was, I don't know which dude it was, but he was in Houston and he was hanging out. And I, by the way, like lubricated goat too. They're great. You know, but lubricated goat digression, pretty fitting. It's funny. It's funny though, how there's like a, um, there's like a, a Australian thing, you know what I mean? Like, uh, um, like there's an Australian frontman thing. Like there's like Stu Spasm, uh, there's the guy from uh, Beast of Bourbon. Uh, what the hell's his name? Like Perkins or some shit like that. That guy. Uh, of course, there's Nick Cave. You know, and there's this kind of like uh, rough and ready. You know, like sideburns, black coat. You know, Western thing that happens in Australia, which I always find very uh, amusing. You know, like these, like all these front men you know, have like a cowboy shirt on and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually. Um, yeah. I would say that like that kind of a tie in between a place like Houston and, and, you know, just your, your sort of typical, uh, or, you know, stereotypical um, aesthetic that you're, you're mentioning is a, I would use the word feral. There's something yeah. kind of feral about about some of these folks you know like i definitely there's definitely a very feral kind of feeling to to houston once you get into it but uh yeah i would agree man i mean um you know and i saw the scientists play not too long ago which is a band that i really like and uh they had the same kind of thing going on you know like the button (laughs) the button down like mother of pearl shirt cowboy shirt kind of look you know um yeah yeah and uh yeah you know i work with a couple of uh i i work with or let me say this i have over the years worked with some australian folks uh here in los angeles and i yeah it's uh, mixed results on how they felt uh about my company but always entertaining people in some kind of way i mean um you know one one dude uh was just telling me about how he was going to pop the tires on someone's car and smash their windshield in if they talk to him again. And, you know, it's like <laughs> another guy and another, they tend to be pretty, pretty, um, a bit caustic, you know, like cool, 
they just really have that kind of vibe, like that kind of like outlaw kind of vibe. Some of these dudes, you know, another dude just straight up just cursed me out. Like he didn't like me. I just got within 10 feet of him and he gave me a piece of his mind. I was like, right on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of badass bands from there. Badass bands from Australia, dude. So let's fast forward a bit now. So you, um, you, you left uh, 16. And, uh, and now how does Cavera form? Like, where do you meet all these guys? And, uh, what's the, uh, you know, the setting that the band forms within? Um, I had, when I moved to, to LA, um, when I moved to Los Angeles, I met Scott Renner, the bass player for Cavera and Goat Snake. He's one of the first people I met when I moved here. So I had known him for a long time. So fast forward to, you know, 2010 or so, I was jamming with Kirk Stevens, the guitarist um, and uh, pulls uh, half duty for vocals along with me in Kavera. And we had a thing where we were jamming with Tony, the bass player from 16 at the time. He's played in like 16 and Cutthroat's 9 and stuff. And, uh, Tony went back 16, got back together. And so me and it kind of dissipated, you know? And so I, and then at, around that time, Tony was like, Hey, do you want to come? They lost their singer. Do you want to come and jam in 16? So what I'm setting up here is that like Kirk Stevens and I had already known one another. And at one point after Tony left, we actually pulled Scott in and he was sort of jamming with us a bit. And this is an entirely different, a project. It wasn't Kavera at all. It was just me and, you know, Kirk and I jamming, um, at, you know, at some point, that's all it was. And so that dissipates. I hit the road. I'm gone for like, you know, I'm doing 16 for like three years, which is when we met again. And then I come back and I actually, you know, I jammed and, and, and kept my chops up, you know, to some degree, but I actually didn't form any other projects like I took a I took a, a break and then I didn't do anything else I think Kirk the the singer guitarist in Kavera he has a like a noise project that he does like it's kind of a sound I think it was born out of like a soundtrack idea he does that with Phil Vera from Despise You and oh, Trappist right who, who's also you know he's also a dude who who um, had a part in the, the, the recording of the, the Kavera album, which we could get into, but, but um, yeah, he's a, you know, a brain trust of uh, a number of bands and they had like a noise thing. <clears throat> he was doing that. And so I got in contact with him. It was a, you know, a couple of years, like at least like, you know, it was 2013 or whatever, something like that. Like, but uh, I eventually got in touch with Kirk and it took a while for us to kind of come to the point where we came back together again, like a pretty significant while. But during the whole time, I actually went off and immersed myself um, into, I was doing other stuff like I, and this kind of has something to do, I think, with some of the acidity on the record as well on my part. Um, because I went and got into, I started doing labor studies at a local technical college because I had gotten into a union a number of years back in like oh nine. Right. You, you and work, I didn't really a, know what it was. You do work, uh, you're a filmmaker. You do work in film. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've got, uh, yeah, I've gotten into the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees in 2009. And then in 2013, after we got off tour, I got myself into the Teamsters. Like I got in myself into a second union. So anyway, um, and that's all in the film industry here. And, you know, um, just for whatever reason, for having gone to labor studies or whatever, it's kind of this weird sort of strange stuff started to happen. Like, uh, I became a steward in one local, but I also became like, um, like I also, so shop steward in, in the IOTC. And then, uh, I got voted by a group of drivers to, uh, represent them at negotiations along with another bunch of bargaining people. So it's just kind of, it's some kind of adult big boy stuff that was taking up a lot of my time. Um, because I really cared about it actually. And so um, I did that for a number of years. And, um, you know, when I just totally, I think it was in 2016, um, I was just spent, like I was just beat. I think I had learned a lot about like corruption and a lot about cowardice and just like the fickle nature of, of human beings. And I was in pr pretty negative place, pretty drained. But um, that, uh, you know, that's when um, I always knew I would come back to music, but that's when I really was like, you know, this it's time for me to to get back into like what it is that I want to be really doing with myself on an artistic level. So from there, you know, Kirk and I plan to get back together. That's sort of like the the setting, you know, of how um, where we were at when we brought it back together. But um, yeah, uh, we didn't have a bass player for a long time. And I had, like I said, I knew Scott uh, and I just knew that he was capable of doing it. You know, he's an incredible bass player, you know, and he's a, a really, a really solid like friend besides being just a friend and a bandmate. I mean, it's like, I would call him sort of like a family friend to like my wife and I were good friends with uh, he and his wife, you know? So um, I knew that I could pull him in and he could do it. And it would be cool. Cause he's just a, a blast as a human being too. He's hilarious. I mean, when we were in the studio, Sanford said at one point, Scott was telling stories, you know, while we were in the studio and, and Sanford was laughing so hard. And he goes, he, you could see Sanford every once in a while looking at Scott, like in sort of a state of disbelief about some of the stuff that he was saying, you know? And he was just like, he looked at me at one point when Scott went out of the room, he's like, you know, I have this little book that I keep and I just write down weird stuff that people say in the studio and I can't keep up with this dude. You know, like I can't write fast enough to like keep up with all the weird shit this guy says. But, uh, so, so yeah, um, I, I pulled him in and, um, I, I, you know, I asked him like, you know, we have me and this guy have this material and, um, uh, you know, and it's obviously this is something that, you know, Kirk and I had both discussed, you know, Kirk being the guitarist, you know, I mean, um, and when, once we agreed on it, like, you know, Scott was like, yeah, sure. So he, he only had like, you know, a couple of months really like that he took to get the songs together that you hear on the record with the exception of there's a noise track on there called the bitter air of exile. Um, he didn't, uh, there's no bass on that particular track. But um, yeah, so that that's it. That's how we, it came together. But Scott actually dug it. Like he was like, yeah, I, I, I see what's going on here. And he's, he hung out. He just stayed. That's awesome. So, is the, 
the writing process is it like more or less collaborative among everyone or does like you know one guy come in with like a bunch of tracks or like how does it work yeah i mean the writing process is um mostly i think most of the material that you you hear i mean it's it's written almost exclusively by kirk the guitarist like he has a thing for arranging and stuff that i don't have personally like i mean maybe maybe i have the feeling of that stuff or like ah that doesn't work there but he's a guy he's like this is why you know this this is why i want this like this like he knows what he's doing you know right but um you know so he writes a lot of the stuff but everything is actually collaborative like uh it's he'll write a bunch of the stuff i do actually hum him some some riffs you know which you know gets kind of funny sometimes i I remember one day i i hummed a riff to him and it had this like slide and he goes well where's the note that i'm sliding from and uh and i and i go oh strum it i think it's up there you know and and he hits it it's on like the like you know like the like top fret or something like that and he's like well where am i supposed to slide to from there you know what i mean because i'm doing this like like eight i'm doing like a you know a three bar slide sound with my with you know vocally you know and he's like there's nowhere to slide to so (laughs) anyway yeah so i'm an idiot but um but yeah, I mean that it's it's a collaborative process. I mean, and he's open to me even like humming stuff to him, and we've come up with some material that way too. But um, and then on the sample side, and then we both we usually mostly we write our own lyrics, but we collaborate on that too, and tell one another, "Here's why I think this. I want some extra vocals on this," and he's like, "Let's double or triple the vocals on this," and um. Yeah. So yeah, yes. Collaborative, but yeah, there are people who definitely do more of the stuff. The sample stuff usually that, that begins um, more often than not on my part, you know, it's collaborative too, but like more often than not, the sample stuff is something that I come up with. I have a couple samplers that I work with and, you know, kind of screw up stuff and make it sound all weird and, you know, fitting. Yeah, yeah. That's and um, fun. it's fun stuff, man. Like fucking around with samples and shit. I like that. It really is, dude. Yeah, there's kind of like, yeah, it's pretty wild. Like I've gone into the to the rehearsal space before, and I've I've just I have a four hundred four sampler, and um, you know, I would hook it up to the the PA and just fucking crank it, dude. You know, so it's like all kinds of weird stuff like just hit all kinds of pads at the same time and it's just like going and looping around you know and then the ghost in the machine starts you really get some weird shit going on and uh kirk walks in on more than one occasion and he's like oh man i love this stuff you know it's like we just sit there and listen to that shit for like 24 hours straight it'd be fine it's cool just put that on don't even need a record you know (laughs) um yeah i mean and uh yeah, so, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Scott came in later, but he does, he he did contribute. You know, there was just, like, some stuff where it was like, I don't know what we're going to do here, and, you know, man about the town when it comes to music. So he's, like, made suggestions that really kind of cool. It was like, I know there was at least one song, I think it was a song, No God, might have been but he came in and he really just kind of put the finishing touches on that which was to me 
significant in that like you know the final dude to come into the picture puts one of the final touches to one of the final songs to be written and then we're off to the races you know the record the record sounds great too i mean it has like like sonically i remember when i first heard it i was like damn this is like really well produced and then lo and behold sanford was involved in the production yes thank you and um yeah sanford is a genius sanford's really good at what he does man Hell yeah. you know and you know i mean it wasn't an accident that we got in touch with sanford like we had heard a number of records that he had done and the same thing goes with you know all the people that ended up working on the album and um you know sanford our friend brian sowell who plays in um death crux and he was um, one of the dudes from Buried at Sea with Sanford. Like um, Kirk and I had discussed getting together with Sanford or potentially, you know, and you never know, I mean, about people. I mean, you see their name on the record or whatever, but it's like, I don't know. Like, you know, you know, this dude is busy or he's in Asia recording, you know, something. I don't, I don't know what's going on with this guy, you know. So we checked on his accessibility and, you know, not to blow up his spot or nothing, but I mean, you know, Brian Sal was like, yeah, yeah, get in touch with him, dude. Here's his, his info. I think he gave me his email or, you know, text number or something like that. And so he was just an accessible dude, uh, which was great. And I mean, and to his credit, man, I mean, the dude just rules because like we had had some rehearsal space recordings and I don't even know if they had vocals on it at the time. And it was like, hey, bro, like, you know, we have, I have this band and, you know um we'd like to record and here's some of our stuff you know and he got back and he was like I i'm totally interested you know what you guys schedule what's your guys schedule like you know which is just awesome dude you know for a guy that is a really respectable human being like that to be that like down to earth and cool you know and get back to you and communicate with you that easily you know so um yeah he uh yeah, thanks to him. And I mean, <clears throat> as well, you know, Phil Vera that I mentioned earlier, Phil has a recording studio behind his house called Veracuda Studios. And he records a lot of a lot of stuff for people. I think he did the Trappist recordings there. And he's probably done some Despise You there, but don't quote me on that. He does record a, a quite a few. He's like, you know, I think he's a, not come to think of it. He's a pretty significant part of the LA sort of scene. You know, he records like uh, a lot of punk bands and stuff there at his house, like heavy bands there. But he did some additional tracking for us. He helped us clean up some samples, you know, from like, you know, just like whatever loop pops and stuff like that, you know, um, and then get them together and formatted to send to Sanford. But we recorded the Bitter Air of Exile, the final track, the like um, noise only track um we recorded that there at Veracuda you know we put that all together there and um did some guitar overdubs and some or just fattening up you know we just fattened it up on our part and then um did some you know some vocal fattening up or whatever there at the place uh for inclusion 
on the record and sent it all off to Sanford and Phil was good enough to like communicate with Sanford for us and sent it all off to Sanford for uh, inclusion on the record, you know? And it just, yeah, just the dude's just a badass. All the guys, they're just incredible. Colin Jordan, the dude who mastered the record. We had, um, we had gotten sort of cued into that dude because of the, I think he did the, I hate God self-titled album. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And we were just like, this is the shit right here. You know, we looked him up, you know, I, th I think it was that album, you know, but like it, we looked him up and we're like, yeah, this is the guy. And so of course, you know, we reached out to Sanford and Sanford's like, Oh yeah, I know that dude. Yeah. You know? So it was just like that. Everything just kind of fell into place, you know? And once, you know, the finances on our end, because we were all, this is all, we all self-funded the whole thing, you know, like, so once we got our shit together, you know, everybody was ready. Now has, uh, has the last, you know, 13 months or so uh, affected the productivity of the bands, like back in 2020, as far as like everything being locked down and like, how, how has that affected you guys? Like, as far as like you getting together to rehearse or write material or anything like that? Well, um, we're writing uh we have continued to write music um uh we don't we don't have the same rehearsal space anymore but we're able to actually like kirk is steadily writing i'm steadily working on ideas so we're definitely putting together the second record which already was well underway when we lost our rehearsal space i mean there's been a couple of i mean it's really hard to complain it's really hard to complain for us. You know I mean? I, it's just, there's a lot of, a lot of silver lining to this for us, but um, we did lose our rehearsal space just in that, that really was a, a COVID situation, you know, because um, you know, the rents in LA, a lot of stuff in LA is like skyrocketing. And right before COVID hit, like we were due for a rent increase. So our rehearsal space was going up to like 900 a month. And we had enough people in there at the time. Yeah, we had enough people in there at the time where we could do it because we had like 11 people or something like that, which, you know, makes 80 something bucks, whatever, you know. But um, once uh, one of the bands like had to move, I mean, because people were just kind of getting there in the first months of COVID. No one knows what's going to happen or how long it's going to last. And psychically, people are just sort of jumping ship, you know. Totally. And um, I think they kind of got their ass handed to them pretty early on and needed to make some the other one of the other bands we were with. They needed to make some um, adjustments. And so once that happened, it's like it's like, you know, you're in like quarantine or whatever. Like, how are you going to like go and meet these dudes to like show them the space or like look for roommates when people. Yeah, it's only. Yeah, the space is uh, 900 a month. And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I haven't worked in four months, you know, like. Um, but, um, I think, you know, they gave us a break for a little while on the rent, but it went back up. So anyway, I'm just kind of like, it's, it, you know, it's a digression, but it's also like, that's kind of like what it sets the sort of scene, you know, around LA, you know, like for, for what's going on and how it's affected us a little bit, but we have kept going. I mean, and obviously, you know, your record comes out during a pandemic, you know, I think it's. Paul caught like from high tone son of a bitch who put out, he is, he's, um, he plays in high tone son of a bitch with like Billy Anderson and Russ Kent. Um, but, um, he has unknown controller records out of Oakland and he put out the tape version of our LP 
And at one point when it came, when it came out he was like, uh, congratulations. Welcome to the club of my record came out during the apocalypse, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So, I mean, and I think, you know, these are, I mean, these are, but you know, again, like these are really insignificant problems compared to the overall shit, which is going on. I mean, there are people that just got screwed, dude. You know I mean? And it's kind of hard to feel bad when like basically nearly the entire planet of musicians is going through the same thing. I mean, I'm not going to be the dude who stands in the corner and cries, especially when I don't have much reason to relatively. I mean, we, um, we, we pressed 500 copies of our record and, um, when you know when thomas from seeing red got in in contact with us about working with us to just you know help for us to distribute it and sort of push it and everything for us which was awesome on his part um you know we we knew that we needed to because we manufactured we paid to have it pressed we paid for pay for everything you know and so um you know right down to like um my wife brooke did um the, the cover and the layout like which is basically the the snake image is a it's yeah. an oil painting that wow. she did for us That's awesome. and um so you know right down to that so like um obviously you know in that scenario you're gonna need to you're gonna need to unload some of those like at shows so that you can can get the full nut for them <laughs> to sort of put you know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, put your shoulder to the wheel, you know, or whatever. So I think that's one of the biggest effects that we've seen is that we haven't been able to unload the records in a live setting, you know? Yeah, totally, man. But hard to complain, man. Well, that leads into this next thing is when people want to purchase this record, aside from just, uh, is Bandcamp the best place to, to purchase physical as well as digital copies? Yeah. Yeah. Bandcamp is the, is the best place to, to get it. I mean, Bandcamp in the United States is the best way, but, um, Thomas landed us distro through plastic head distribution in the UK. So if you're in Europe and you want to get a copy of it, if you're anywhere across the pond, like uh, plastic head has it up on their store, they're selling it over there, which is bitching, you know? Is there a way yeah. for people to buy things directly from you, though? Because uh, I know the uh, the Bandcamp is uh, seeing Red's Bandcamp. Yeah, I mean that line item on our Bandcamp. Thomas fulfills those orders. Um, right now, um, any of the like merch that we sell online, like the shirts, which we're almost out of. Yeah, like those those are directly from us. And that, so that line item, that's us. We'll be putting more shirts together. And then once we start playing shows again, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be having the, uh, having the records with us there, you know, fingers crossed. Right. Yeah. Hopefully this year, man, at some point later, you know, we could get back to playing live gigs. That's like been like a huge, yeah, just like drag, you know, I'm not going to complain either, man, because like, um, you know, I, 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 we had, we had a bunch of great shit last year just get canceled, but I'm not going to belabor those things because 
I'm healthy, you know, like the people in my family are healthy. It's like, it's all good. So I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to complain, you know? And, um, but yeah, it would be nice just on like a emotional level to get out there and start playing gigs again, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I bet you once we get out there and we start playing shows again, we'll realize just how completely insane we have been going. You know what I mean? You know that release, like when you get into the rehearsal space yeah. after a full week of work or something like that, when you just hadn't been able to get in and then you jam and then you're like, oh my God, I realized I was a total psychopath before I came into this room. Uh, it's typically how it happens for, for, for us. Yeah, well, Kirk feels the same way. Yeah, Amidst all this stuff though, I could definitely, um, I definitely see certain mental things like I have to be aware of a lot of stuff these days, you know, cause I mean, I'm, I'm here, I'm alone. I'm like completely by myself right now. Like I don't, I don't have a room. I live by myself, me and my cat. And, uh, I don't really see any, anyone, you know, I, I have, uh, we have band practice and, um, I, I assume risks by, uh, by going to train at a gym, you know, and, uh, but that's really it. So, but I do see like, emotional and like psychic tolls that have taken place with you know on me personally so it's eventually being able to go out and play shows i think first and foremost will be a incredibly therapeutic exercise aside from just promoting your music or whatever you know what i mean yeah for sure man i mean and uh you know reminded when you're talking of like that old henry rollins line where he's like you know people sometimes people call me and I just let it ring, you know? <laughs> and like, yeah, like I'm, I, I, I get it. Like I'm down for that, you know, but, uh, it's been ringing a while, man. You know what I mean? That phone has been ringing for a while now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I remember also there was an image that, uh, you had put up, you know, somewhere online. I think it was, near the beginning it's been, it's been a long time now man like near the beginning of the the whole pandemic situation and it was like the dude from apocalypse now looking out the blinds yeah you know and i was like i just that image i was like yeah dude totally you yeah. know oh yeah <laughs> just like kind of just like looking out and going oh, fuck, you know yeah but yeah, um it's real man for sure yeah totally man um but it's working out better in Jersey for you though. Right. For then, uh, being in the midst of like New York city. Yeah. I, uh, my, my whole like operation has been migrating out here for a few years prior to me actually moving because the band location and, uh, our practice space and most of the guys that are in the band live out here. And, um, you know, you mentioned your $900 rent, on uh on the practice space and that reminds me just of the the misery of trying to do a band in new york city or in brooklyn you know like just the cutthroat mentality of the landlords who run these places and uh you know and, and the guys that i play with now that have been in the band for the last like three or four years like we have this incredible practice space out here with like you know, a lounge and there's like, people don't destroy it, you know, and there's like a working freight elevator and the room is big and 
it's like a professional uh you know studio it's great it's like a professional rehearsal spot that you can when you go on tour you can leave your vehicle in the parking lot no one's gonna tow it or any of that kind of stuff we park our van there and it's um that that was like the first uh inkling i had that maybe moving out here might be a better thing for me uh just in the kind of life i'm trying to lead and uh yeah and eventually i moved out here and it's been great i live in a very small town that's about you know like maybe a 40 minute drive to get back to new york and uh and that's close enough and far enough away if you know what i'm saying so that's good yeah dude that's epic man that's epic yeah i mean um yeah there's a couple of spaces like that around la too i think they're full right now you know for a good reason but uh yeah but yeah um uh what else man that's it man i just want to thank you for uh yeah i just want to thank you for uh for doing this man it's um you know i've been i've been trying to figure out a way to really uh set this up and this is like a good a good way to talk about the band i had a lot of questions about cavera and um yeah i'm looking forward to what else you guys have coming out you know we're looking forward to uh to putting it out man um and we're honored dude that you uh chose to set this up to to kind of ask some stuff about the band um it's uh it, it really uh yeah it's just a really super cool thing dude we love the show by the way i'm oh, always nice. like sending links to kirk um you know and we we discuss the show and the stuff because it was basically the same sort of uh i don't know same sort of peer group the same age came up during the same time a lot of the stuff that we're talking about earlier you know so it really really hits the nail on the head for us now so well, we appreciate it thank you man and i'm looking forward to really you know stepping things up here at everything went black now that this is going to be my uh you know this and necromaniacs are going to be my sole fo- focus in the podcasting world yeah man and i am looking forward to it dude i love everything went black uh the metal matter show is awesome but i just know that the everything went black thing is going to be sick dude it always has been it's just going to be bitching man so godspeed and um good fortune in uh all of your endeavors coming up man right on man thanks a lot